We turn in God's word to Leviticus chapter 16. And there we find God's word upon the day of atonement. The day of atonement in Hebrew. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. The day of covering. The day of atonement. As we continue to consider the mighty work of God. The mighty work of God doing what only God can do. Covering our sins, removing our sins, bringing and establishing peace, and now calling us forth to be consecrated for Him. We'll read the entirety of this chapter, Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, that is to say the most holy place, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement for it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil And put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. 
and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. When he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands, both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp and the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and make his body and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Amen. As far as the reading of God's word, let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing upon our time together. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we come to now this day the solemn day of atonement revealed in your word, given at first to your people Israel through the hand of your servant Moses, and then given to us, Father, afterward as well. And Father, we ask and pray not only that we would understand this word given to your people in its original context, but that we would understand how this word is amplified and fulfilled in Jesus Christ how it prefigures that great day of atonement on the cross of our Savior. And that Father, leaving behind 
animal sacrifices and really all manner of self-sacrifices that we could ever offer to you, we would find our covering and our protection in Christ alone, in his death, in his broken body, and his shed blood on the cross. Grant us, Father, to do precisely this in this hour and forevermore in our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> the history of the world is the long history of man desperately trying to ease and unburden his guilty conscience and to find peace, but to try to do all of that without God and without Jesus Christ. The history of the world is the history of man seeking self-atonement, but finding none. It's the history of man seeking a substitute who can suffer for his sins, but finding no adequate substitute, a substitute either in himself or in another person or another culture or another nation. A substitute that will finally be that scapegoat that will remove their sins far from them and give them peace. We see this on an individual level. We see this perhaps even in our own lives, even in Christ. And most certainly we see this in the lives of those who are not in Christ when we're sinned against. Right? We want to exact payment from the offender. And when we are the ones who sin against others, when we are the sinners, how easy it is to become manipulated in an attempt to appease the one who was offended, to self-atone, to cover our sense of guilt, whether real or false. This happens on an individual level. This happens within marriages. This happens among families. This happens among cultures. This happens among nations. This, this happens in the world. And this has happened in the world throughout all of history since Genesis 3. The world, you see, spirals more and more into greater guilt because as much as it wants atonement, it refuses the only atonement it can ever have. The atonement that God has provided for the world in his Son. And what we find in this marvelous passage, Leviticus 16, is that what we can never do, God does. What we can never accomplish, God does in his mercy, atoning for the sins of his people in the death of Christ that's prefigured here by the two goats that are sacrificed. One that is killed and the other that is sent far into the wilderness after all the sins of God's people have been laid upon it. I want you to consider with me this passage and to consider the various aspects of what atonement is. Atonement in scripture has a number of aspects, but I'm going to highlight the four main aspects of what atonement is. Atonement includes and must include a substitutionary death that covers our sins. Atonement must include, secondly, a removal of our sins from us. 
And third, atonement includes the establishment of peace between God who has been offended and man who offended God and violated his law. And then fourthly and finally, atonement includes the consecration of God's people to now live for God. Notice then with me what happens in our text. There are before atonement is effectuated, there are preparations that the high priest must undertake. Aaron here being the first high priest. And we're told from the very start in verses one and two that Aaron as the high priest cannot just come, cannot just waltz into God's presence in any which way he wants his sons tried to do that in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu. And what happened to them? They drew near before the Lord and they died. That, of course, is a biblical euphemism that says that God struck them down with fire from above. You cannot approach God in any way you want, in a way he has not authorized we must approach God as we find in the, these early verses, verses 1 through 10. We must approach God in the right way, in the way he has revealed with right offerings. A sin offering for ourselves, a sin offering for the people. And the high priest must approach God not just with right offerings, but with the right garments. He must be clothed with holy linen garments. And then, as in verse 11 through 14, we find he must, before he sacrifices for God's people, he must offer for himself first. See, this is part of the reason why this system that God establishes, that God establishes, cannot be adequate to atone for our sins. Because here we have priests who are sinful themselves. We have priests here who need to atone for their own sins. He must take a bull and offer it for his sins and the sins of his house. That doesn't mean his family, but for the sins of the Levites, the Levitical priests. And he must take the blood and sprinkle it seven times with his finger upon and in front of the mercy seats. And then he takes a censer and fills it with coals from the altar. And he fills it with incense so that now he enters the most holy place with incense that covers that innermost chamber of the tabernacle. Let me very quickly here explain some of the architecture and the, uh, the layout of the tabernacle for all of our benefit. Perhaps we, we might know some of these things. Perhaps we don't know what a tabernacle is. The tabernacle was that enclosed tent that God said Israel was to create that later on became not a portable tent, but became a permanent temple. And there was in the tabernacle an outer court Right? It, it was uh, circumscribed. It was, uh, it, the boundary of the tabernacle was created by pillars that had curtains. And in this outer court, there was a laver where the priests would wash. And then there was a bronze altar that had four horns, four corners. And on this bronze altar were the sacrifices of the animals uh, done. And then in this tent that was beyond the bronze altar, there was the, the first room in this tent, in this enclosure, was the room called the holy place. And in the holy place, there were three items. There was a candlestick, what's called today the menorah, the, the seven-headed uh, candlestick that was continually uh, uh, illumined. 
There was an altar of incense that was continually fed. And then on the side, there was a table with caked bread that was uh, put there before God. And that's the table of what's called the showbread. And then beyond this uh, chamber, this first room in the tent is the innermost chamber. Not just a holy place, but the most holy place. And here there is but one item. There is the Ark of the Covenant, which was a rectangular box encased in gold that had a lid on top of it. And this lid was called the propitiatory or the mercy seat. This mercy seat was a lid that had two angels that were um, worked over in gold that had wings outstretched that looked downward. And you see, it is here in the most holy place that God's presence is found. And the, the concentrated presence of God is found especially right over the mercy seat. And so what are we told the first time that Aaron walks in to that most that, that innermost chamber, that most holy place, he must go in with incense. In verse 13, before he even sprinkles blood of the bull offering for his own sin and the sins of the Levites, he must go in with incense, symbolizing that he goes in prayerfully. The incense was not meant to cover God. It was meant to cover him. Incense being symbolic of the prayers of God's people rising from earth below to heaven above. As it were, Aaron, in this, in this ritual of bringing incense into the most holy place, is saying, God, please forgive your people because of the atonement that is about to occur. And is it not the case that we do the same? Our prayers are not founded upon us, right? In the name of Samuel Perez, we pray or I pray, or in your name do you pray. No, your prayers are punctuated by the name and in the merit and in the righteousness of another who has taken your place because of what Jesus did, because of his atonement. Oh God, have mercy upon me. And then in verse 15 through verse 22, we find the heart of what atonement is. There is in these verses, the first and the second aspects. There is a substitutionary death. In verse 15, uh, in previous verses, we're told that lots were cast, dice were cast, in other words, to, to determine that uh, which of the two goats would be killed and which of the two goats would be released into the wilderness. And the goat that is to be killed is then sacrificed. In verse 15, it's blood sprinkled on the mercy seat in the most holy place. Here we're told the first aspect of the atonement is a covering by a substitute. There is, as it were, not Israel put on the mercy seat, but the blood of another. Israel deserves to be slaughtered. It's Israel's blood that deserves to be placed over the mercy seat. But it's not Israel. It's not Israel's blood. It's the blood of a goat that is placed over the mercy seat as a righteous satisfaction for the sins of Israel. 
And what God is telling us, what God tells his people then and there is simple. I provide for your salvation. I provide for your forgiveness in this animal sacrifice. And so when God's presence is over the mercy seat, he does not kill Israel, but he sees the blood of this goat and covers their sin and forgives their sins and their iniquities and their transgressions. Did you notice where else this blood is placed and sprinkled? Notice with me in God's word, Leviticus 16, verse 15. Sprinkle it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Okay, we got that good enough. Verse 16. Sprinkle it over the holy place. He shall make atonement for the holy place. He shall make atonement later on in verse 16 for the tent of meeting. In verse 18, he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar around. And these instructions, you see, are repeated in verse 20. He has, when he has made an atonement for the holy place, for the tent of meeting, for the altar, they're repeated in verse 33. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, for the tent of meeting, and for the altar. Atonement for the priests, atonement for the people in the assembly. You see, it's not just the people that need to be cleansed and atoned, but it's the place of the people that needs to be sanctified. This place that is God's home, this tabernacle. And you see, what atonement means, it's not just that our sins are forgiven and covered by God. True salvation means that we dwell with God once more in worship and in adoration. God says, as it were, not only do I forgive your sins, but I bring you home to my home to be with me. And here you see, here we find a place of reconciliation. When the Israelite was to see the tabernacle, he was not to see a, a place that had kind of weird curtains and, and it was very colorful in a very bland desert. He was to see the place that was his home where God dwells and where he dwells. Although God is holy, he's unholy. God has made provision for him to live with God. Here's the place of fellowship the Israelite was to say. Here's the picture of Eden restored once more. Here's the place of intimate fellowship and association with God. Through the blood of the atonement, God brings us to his home once more. From the innermost chamber to the outermost area, God is preparing the tabernacle to be not only his dwelling place, but to be our dwelling place with him. And he does all this. He prepares this home for his people through the blood of the atonement. But not only do we have a substitute cover our sins in verse 20 and 22, we have another goat who was in many ways spared waiting at the entrance of the tent. And on this goat, the high priest would go and lay both of his hands and confess all the iniquities, the transgressions and the sins of God's people. 
transferring, as it were, all of their sins and their punishment upon this substitute goat. In English, this substitute goat has been known as the scapegoat, which is an older English word that simply means the goat that was escaped. It's a, it's a conjunction of those two words. Azazel here in our text is another word that is used for the same principle. It's the goat that is sent off to a remote wilderness. It's the goat that's been appointed onto dismissal. And Aaron here, after laying upon this goat, the sins of God's people, sends it far, far, far away into the wilderness. There is, yes, two goats, but here you should see that it's one sacrifice. It's one truth. It's the one principle of atonement that is being revealed by God as his mighty work. That God's justice is satisfied and our sins punished in the death of our substitute. And at the same time, our sins are removed far from us, laid upon our substitute. And then finally, verses 24 down through the end of the chapter, verse 34. God having covered Israel's sin and removed it from his sight. What happens now? What occurs now? We're told, simply put, that Aaron re-enters the tent. He takes off the garments and the vestments of sacrifice that no doubt would have been bloody. But, but there's no need anymore for those vestments and those garments. He, he takes them off and he bathes and he puts on his normal high priestly clothes. And then he does what? He offers whole burnt offerings to God. A ram for himself and another ram for the people. But the whole burnt offering, you see, is not to cover sin. The sin's been covered already. The whole burnt offering has another symbolic meaning. The whole burnt offering is to manifest the peace that God has established between him and his people and the dedication of Israel's life to God. And this is throughout scripture what a whole burnt offering is. It's symbolic of the complete, entire, total consecration of the sacrifice to God. The whole, burn, the whole ram is burnt in service to God. And so in the same way, the totality of Israel's life is to be offered to God as a sacrifice. As we work through this text, no doubt you see, you hear glimpses of the gospel. God having ordained this series of sacrifices in Exodus and Numbers, we're told that there are about 15 sacrifices altogether that occur on this day. And God establishes this day of atonement as a placeholder that prepares Israel for the final salvation to be revealed. Israel was to trust God, not the animal. Why? Because on their own sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats cannot deal with sin. Look over at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> at the end of Israel's life, <clears throat> what was Israel to see by the time 
post-exilic prophets prophesied, Malachi, Haggai, Zechariah. They were to see precisely these verses come to life. Hebrews 10 verse 1 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, there's a shadow. That's what the law is. It's a shadow. It's not the person itself. It's not the substance. It's a copy. Because it's only a copy, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year and to not put a fine point on it. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yes, the ongoing, repetitive, daily, and in our case, annual sacrifices would not have only created a great expectation that God would send a final atonement, a perfect sacrifice. They would have had another series of effects upon Israel. The the annual repetitive sacrifice of atonement would have bore down on Israel's soul. They would have tormented their consciousness knowing that they would be back at the tabernacle, back at the temple next year with more animals to sacrifice, with more blood to shed, more, more, more. And yet never once closer to the substance of redemption. What we're told in the day of atonement that the New Testament makes so clear is that what no man, what no man, what no animal sacrifice can accomplish, what is completely impossible for man, Jesus Christ accomplishes on the cross. God deals with our sins, this this thing that we are, this, this nature that we have, this guilt that we possess that's inside of us, that is us. God finally deals with that in Jesus Christ. He deals with our guilty conscience, with our standing before him, with our eternal destiny. So that just as the Israelite would have seen the tabernacle and seen, yes, that God is reconciling all things in that blood of the atonement. And yet there is a final atonement to come. In a full and final ultimate way, we are to see Jesus Christ on the cross and see his broken body and shed blood and say, there, there is my atonement. There is my covering for my sin. There is the removal of all my transgressions. In, in Jesus Christ. The burden of the book of Hebrews is to show that Jesus is in so many ways better than whatever copies, whatever shadows there were in the Old Testament. And not just that he is better, but that he alone is the perfection, the substance of redemption. Jesus is a better priest because he is sinless and he is immortal. He retains his office forever. And Jesus is a better temple. And presents in a better temple, God's very heavenly presence, not an earthly temple that's corrupted by human hands. And he presents his sacrifice, not repetitively, not annually or daily, but once for all time. 
because the sacrifice that Jesus presents is perfect. The sacrifice Jesus presents can't be added to, can't be supplemented. And what is that sacrifice? It's not an animal. It's not the blood of bulls and goats. The sacrifice of Jesus that gains us entrance into the presence of God is himself. His very body, his very blood. What these two goats typified, Jesus accomplishes. Jesus dies for our sins as our substitute, condemned, crucified in our place. And Jesus not only is our substitute, but he is the removal of our sins. Isaiah 53, so many passages. God has laid all of our iniquities and punishment on Jesus, our representative. And what is the result of that? We have full and free remission of sins. Remission is a word that you might hear once a month when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are to take, eat, remember, and believe. We are to take, drink, remember, and believe that the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ is given unto a complete remission of all of our sins. What is remission? It used to be the case many years ago when credit card statements were still sent to people. And you might remember this before paperless statements that you would get a sheet of paper with all of the transactions of that month. And then you would get a little slip of paper, which was the remittance slip and you would send that remittance slip back to the credit card company's address along with your payment. And in that transaction, your debt was remitted. Your debt was fully paid, fully canceled, fully removed. And that's, you see what Jesus has done. He has fully paid. He has fully canceled. He has fully removed our debt, our sins, our punishment, our guilt. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west. Children, will the east ever meet the west? Will the east ever meet the west? No. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. Micah chapter 7, at the very end of his oracle, the prophet says, God has cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And this, you see, is the, the core of the covenantal promise that God will be our God and we will be his people. But how is this possible? Because as Jeremiah 31 says, repeated in Hebrews 8, repeated in Hebrews 10, God will forgive our iniquity. And he says, I will remember their sins no more. God will never remember our sins. Jesus, you see, took them and Jesus removed them so that now, you know, what does it mean that he won't remember? I thought God was omniscient. Does, does God press the delete button in his mind and somehow doesn't know what we did? No, God is omniscient. He knows who you are. 
He knows that you are a sinner. There is nothing that God doesn't know. But what it means that God will not remember your sins anymore is that God will not count your sins against you. So that when he sees you, he doesn't merely see you in your sin, but he sees the covering of Christ's body and blood over you. You are enveloped in Christ. And so he sees you, but he truly sees Christ over you. His blood shed for you. His body pierced for your salvation. It's so instructive for us to to think, to meditate about how the Father remembers Jesus Christ in our place. Jesus. We've never seen Jesus on the cross. That, that atonement that he offered was once for all time. We, we, we've never seen Jesus on the cross and we hear about Jesus and we believe Jesus and we believe God's word for us. Amen and amen. But we can so often forget the sacrifice and the death of Jesus. But does God ever forget his son's sacrifice? No, it continually forevermore speaks of eternal Redemption. God looks at us and looks at his son's blood over us. And still the blood of Jesus has its full effect. We forget Jesus' blood. We forget his sacrifice. But the father, the father never forgets what his son accomplished for us in our place. There are an infinite number of applications that we can have. And it does us well to take this Lord's Day for you on your own time after worship to consider in the quietness of your soul and in conjunction with your family in family worship today. But what are the applications? What are the implications? What are the consequences? That Christ alone is our atonement. I want to mention but three as we conclude. First and foremost, how can you approach God? How can any man approach God? Only in and through the blood of Christ. Only through this atonement that God has given as a substitute and as a removal of our sins. You see, paganism teaches that man appeases the gods, the false gods that man constructs and creates, not Christianity. In Christianity, we don't do, we receive, we are given. It's God, not man, that appeases and satisfies his own justice. But man, what does man in his unbelief do? He rejects God in this endless search for self-atonement. People of God, you should know that this question, this is a primal question that rages in every soul of every person that has ever lived. What can save me? Who can save me? And yet man in his unbelief, seeking an atonement, seeking a covering for his sin, for his sin, seeking a removal of his sins far from him. He wants peace. He wants an unburdened conscience. He wants to be released from his guilt. And yet he refuses God. What dread to, to reject and utterly hate the only one who can save them. 
Man not wanting, not receiving divine atonement, seeks self-atonement. And this looks in, in, in so many different ways. You see it all day long. You see it in the news. You see it in our culture. You see it perhaps in your families. Whatever pain a person who hasn't, their, their sins haven't been atoned for. They have no peace. They have a guilty conscience. Whatever pain they can experience, right? Whatever bloodshedding they can have, they will in order to ease their conscience. And more and more, it's not just that man seeks to shed his blood. Man seeks to shed the blood of his neighbor. I want him to suffer. I want them to feel my pain and to atone for their sins. And yet man's self-atonement will never end. It will never remove real guilt from God's eyes for all the the sacrifices, the self-atoning sacrifices man offers to the false gods of his own making. He is left uncovered, unforgiven, unprotected, and ultimately destroyed by his own gods. You cannot stand before God with self-atonement. Nadab and Abihu could not come with a religion of their own making. They tried. They tried to innovate this religion. And we're going to do it this way. And we're going to do it this other way. We're going to get fire from this other place. And what happened to them? And what will happen to any person? When they stand at the end of their life, they will be struck down by God in his presence. How can man approach God only through the blood of Christ provided for us by God himself in mercy? But secondly, secondly, having had our sins atoned for by Christ, covered and removed by the blood of the Lamb, we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. You you can't have peace without Christ's work on your behalf. You will be burdened down. You will be weighed down, always reminded like the Israelite worshiper, reminded of your sin. But now in Christ, our sins, our guilt, our punishment are taken away. Our conscience is at peace. We're set free. And we approach God, yes, in a healthy fear, but we approach God as our Father with a cleansed conscience. Peace, peace is what God gives you. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the word at one mint, atonement, means in the older definition. It means that those who were at war with one another are now reconciled, are now at one We are, because of Jesus Christ, at one with God in a relationship, not of disfavor and condemnation and curse, but now in a relationship of father to children, in a relationship of blessing and favor. And this is dealt with squarely in the death of Christ. J.G. Machen, in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, has a number of wonderful passages. And one of his passages, he, he says, as he deals with the nature of man and sin, that sin is squarely dealt with in Jesus Christ. 
Sin is not denied. It's not minimized. No, it's actually dealt with in Jesus Christ. Think of Saul, then known as Paul, the apostle, but Saul of Tarsus. How can he write these words? Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. How, how can Paul, Saul of Tarsus, have peace with God? Who was Saul? He was a blasphemer. He was a murderer. He was a persecutor of the church, not just a murderer of people. He was a murderer of God's people. A self-righteous Pharisee, a hater of God. And yet, for all of his Pharisaical righteousness, Saul was dead. Saul was condemned by God. And Saul, on the road to Damascus, is blinded by the glory of God and the light of the Son of God. And in that moment of blindness, Saul finally sees. He finally sees that what he needs, he cannot provide for himself. But is freely given by God in Christ. So that now Paul can say, I'm forgiven, I'm set free, I'm washed, I have peace with God. Believer, you need to have peace with God. What, what troubles your conscience? You know, what, what are you at your worst? Let's be honest, we are at our worst most of the time. What is your greatest sin? What is that which torments your conscience? And what savior do you have for those sins? In a moment, we're going to sing the hymn, Jesus paid it all. Beloved, what Savior you have is the Savior God has provided, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ paid it all. Jesus Christ paid for all of my sins. Jesus Christ removed all of my sins forevermore from his sight. All the regrets you have, what do you do with them? All the sins you have presently, all the things you're perhaps conscious of, what do you do with them? Don't self-atone. Don't self-atone. There is no hope in self-atonement. You must go to Christ and you must see that all of your sins have been laid upon Christ by God himself. And all of your sins have been removed by God, never to be remembered by him forevermore. But then after atonement comes peace and after peace comes the fourth and final aspect of atonement, which is consecration and dedication. Jesus cleanses you so that now you are his dwelling place to live with you now so that you would live for him in total, complete consecration and surrender. The hymn says three times and it stands that Jesus paid it all. But the next line and all that we would sing this with knowledge, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Your life, beloved people of God, because it has been paid for by the blood of Christ, is to be dedicated to Christ as a living offering completely to God. And this, you see, is one thing that is so contrastive with the way the world thinks of atonement. One of the most insightful theologians you could ever read on the nature of atonement. Some of us know the name R.J. Rushdoony. I commend his writings on atonement wholeheartedly to you. Rushdoony points out that the world wants self-atonement because, right, when, when you do something bad, man, I shouldn't have killed that person. I shouldn't have robbed that thing. I shouldn't have said that thing to my 
wife or to my husband or to my child or to my dad or mom or to whoever else. I did something bad, right? The world wants to feel better about it. The world wants a sedative, right? Let me do something to self-atone so that now I can go back and live that life I want to live again. No, that's not the way the Christian thinks about atonement. Atonement is not the end point of our lives, but it's the starting point of our lives. Your sin is forgiven. And now Jesus says, go forth and sin no more and live for God. Live for God. Your words, your conversations, your thoughts, your motivations offered unto God, completely dedicated to him. Your money, your time, your work offered to God in complete surrender and dedication to him. Your marriage, your wife, your husband, your spouse, your children, your family offered to God in complete dedication and surrender to him. Your aspirations, your dreams, your very heart, who you are offered to God in complete dedication and surrender. To him. You must surrender your entire life just as that ram was offered as a whole burnt offering to God. So Israel was to see that and say, oh, no part of that lamb was not burned. And so no part of my life is to be left unoffered to God. And so it is now in the sacrifice of Christ, in him. We have been made whole in him. We have peace. And now because we have peace with God, we live for God. In the hymn of Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross, what must be my response when I see my Savior, when I see the cross, when I see his sacrifice for me, bleeding for me, pierced for me, removing my sins from me. The last stanza and the last line, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, would you drive us time and again to Christ? Father, to know that you have provided for us in the mightiest work of them all, in the work of the death of your Son. Father, may we never tire of the glory of Christ. And may we never tire, Father, of enjoying truly that peace that sin and self-atoning sacrifices could never give. And that, Father, we would never tire of surrendering our lives to you time and again. For Christ paid it all, and all to him we owe. Father, hear us for these things we ask and pray. In Jesus' name, amen.